the Spanish-American War of 1898, the United States wrested the Philippine Islands from Spain, and the Filipinos were pleased to be liberated from Spanish rule. The Filipinos had been fighting for many years for their own independence from Spain, and although they temporarily welcomed the Americans' help in that liberation, Filipinos themselves thought that what they were fighting for was an independent Philippines. And when they realized the Americans were becoming an occupying and colonial power, they began a fight against them. Welcome back to I Americanized, a podcast which explores a topic central to America and its influences. I'm your host, Shafi Hussain, and today we're looking at America's influence on the Philippines. I'm so excited for this episode because I was very lucky to get Richard Chu. He's a professor now at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Professor Richard has also authored the book The Chinese and Chinese Messages of Manila. He will also be having a book coming out pretty soon in April titled More Tomboy, More Bakala Than We Admit. Insights into sexual and gender diversity in Philippine culture. This episode is fascinating because we look into the start of America's imperialism and we explore obviously the impact it had on the Philippines. We look at the war of 1898. We discuss the independence of the Philippines and reasons behind it. This is a really insightful episode and I hope you guys enjoy the show today. Okay, uh, you know, having been born and raised in the Philippines, um, as, a, as a Filipino with an ethnic Chinese background, I was always conscious about, or at least uh, when I was older, that uh, there seemed to be uh, some ethnic division between the Chinese in the Philippines and the Filipinos. I considered myself a Filipino first and foremost, although I was very aware of my Chinese-ness because I went to a Chinese school. Uh, we speak Chinese at home, uh, we eat Chinese food, we observe some uh, Chinese um, practices. Um, but I, I, I was, you know, um, I thought of myself as a Filipino and but that changed when I went to college and uh, I was exposed to many Filipino classmates. You see, back in, in K-12 or in elementary and high school, I went to a Chinese school. So my, my classmates were mostly also Chinese. But when I went to college, that's when I was exposed to many other Filipinos. And um, I was surprised that some of them don't see me as a Filipino. They, they call me in chip, which is a, a term that they use for the Chinese and which has derogatory meanings. And so that was one of the instances or events in my life, my going to college, where I, I realized that, hey, I, even though I'm, uh, I consider myself Filipino, I'm still not looked by Filipinos as one of them. And conversely, the Chinese in the Philippines also look at the Filipinos differently. 
they, they call them Juana, which means barbarian. Um, yeah, so, so that's the term. And this is a term that originated from China because China was the all, had always considered itself as, at least for some time, as the Middle Kingdom. And everyone else who lived outside of the empire was considered uh, a foreigner or a barbarian. You know, you're a foreigner, then you're a barbarian. Yeah, I, I think for for each dominant country or empire, they have a way of classifying um, people who are um, different from them. You know, um, and so, and I guess people also like who are being dominated, they also have a way of uh, looking at people who are different from them. But uh, in the case of the Chinese uh, or the Americans, they look at themselves as better than most other people, right? And and um, whereas Filipinos would see themselves um, better than the Chinese probably, but not as good as the Americans because the, the Philippines had been dominated or colonized by the United States. Uh, so there is certainly an othering uh, of uh, people who are different and, and in that othering you, you ascribe to them certain characteristics that are, that are worse than yourself, uh, but there is certainly a hierarchy um, amongst the different, uh, you would so, you know, so-called races around the world as to who believes uh, themselves to be the best, you know. Um, so when you know, when growing up, and I realized that um, that there's this ethnic division, and I was sad about that because, um, you know, I wanted to see the Philippines prosper and be united as a country. And so, if seeing that there's this ethnic division, I felt that uh, this is not helping the country especially the Philippines economically is, is, uh, belongs to the poorer uh, countries. And so when I, to make the long story short, I'm jumping to uh, my academic career. When I decided to become a historian, I, I wanted to examine or study the roots or the origins of this ethnic division in the Philippines, between the Chinese and the Filipinos, that's that's what that's what your research is nowadays. And you said that obviously growing up, that has been very impactful of how you perceived yourself growing up in you know in your native country, and you felt like the other. And you said that you did feel that difference between like I think that's a similar thing. Like if you're colonized, but like I speak English, like we are colonized by the Brits, Bangladesh, like in the whole of India was colonized by the Brits. And it is such a common theme that if you can speak English, you're better than the people who don't speak it in your own native country. So is that was similar to in Philippines, I'm assuming when you could when some people could speak English or American English. Oh yes. Oh yes, definitely. Um, knowing English is a status symbol and uh, anyone who cannot speak English or even just cannot speak uh, straight English uh, is looked down upon by those who are very fluent in English. Uh, you can see that um, in, you know, when you are in the Philippines and 
and and um, there is one uh, probably I'm digressing because of, but one example uh, where English is uh, has being able to speak English has become a marker of um, being educated or or uh, being intelligent even uh, is a beauty contest, you know, the beauty contest in the Philippines, which is, they're very, very popular. And during beauty contests, there is uh, an answer, question and answer portion, you know? And, and the, the, the Filipino uh, women who join uh, these beauty pageants, they're always expected to speak English or to ans answer in English. They can't uh, answer in English. Then they, then they usually are. They don't win. They don't win, or or people think that they're not as good. Yeah, it should be called from like um, a beauty contest to a beauty and language contest because that's what it is, right? Because if you cannot speak in English, you're by default almost disqualified, which is which happens in Bangladesh too. Like you, we have like local, you know, beauty contests, and and obviously the host will ask a question in English, and if you cannot speak, if you cannot answer in english you're probably never gonna, not going to win that contest which is you know which is i guess the first sign of uh imperialism at its finest right like you you have that uh, across the globe now but you know there's people will always try to debate the other fact of how it is standardized and it's probably better because it's easier to communicate with with uh, most most people than not if you don't have like a standardized language which you know we don't have to debate right now, I guess. But <laughs> I, I I wanted to I guess trace it back to the American Philippine War. I feel like is kind of the start of American imperialism because they started you know with the Spanish and American War that kind of devolved and evolved into into this war in back in the 1890s. And so I just kind of wanted to have your input on that and why because like you know back in the day you could just buy land right so i when i was reading and researching on this topic i saw that the spanish sold it for like 20 million dollars the 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 islands to to the united states which is in in itself is insane because you can't even buy a two-bedroom house in new york city for 20 mm -hmm. million dollars now so so how how did that happen and what was the consequences of i guess the spanish war leading towards the the uh, american philippine war? okay uh so being a historian i always like to give a context um so spain had first colonized the philippines for over 300 years from 1565 until 1898 the, the year when uh, Spain ceded the Philippines over to the United States. And so um, in 1896, there was an independence movement going on in the Philippines, um, established and organized by, by Filipinos um, and, and fighting against Spain uh, and, and demanding that they be independent. And so the, the war or this revolution was going on when the United States got involved in Cuba uh, because Cuba also had its own revolution against Spain. And so that led to the Spanish-American War um, 
especially after the uh, the warship the USS Maine was blown up or or blew up, and more than two hundred American um, naval soldiers were were killed, and and the United States blamed the blamed Spain for for that explosion. So with the declaration of uh, the Spanish-American War in April of 1898, the United States also sent um, their admiral, um, George Dewey, who was based in Hong Kong, to, to go to the Philippines and, and fight against the Spanish Navy in the Philippines. Because Cuba, along with the Philippines, or the Philippines, along with Cuba, was one of the remaining colonies of Spain. So with the declaration of the Spanish-American War, they also fought the uh, Spanish um, army and navy back in the Philippines. And it was a one-sided battle, um, the, uh, the, what they called the Battle of Manila Bay, uh, which happened in, in May of 1898. The U.S. Navy easily defeated the Spanish uh, Navy, and after the defeat of the Spanish Navy in Manila Bay, uh, the U.S. government proceeded to uh, send its uh, military to take over the Philippines. Okay, but as I as I mentioned at that time, there was already a revolution against against Spain. And in June of 1898, a month after the Battle of Manila Bay, uh, the Philippine Revolutionary Movement had declared independence from Spain. So today in the Philippines, Independence Day is on June 12, because June 12, 1898 was when they declared independence from Spain. However, despite that declaration, Spain and the United States did not recognize it and, and proceeded to agree between themselves on a transfer of power you know, from, from Spain to the United States. So in December of 1898, six months after, they signed a treaty, the Treaty of Paris, which stipulated that Spain would turn over to the, to the United States, the Philippines in exchange for $20 million, as well as um, turn over its remaining colonies, you know, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam. Um, and so that was the start of the, um, you might say, um, the, the process by which the United States began to take over the Philippines. And um, because it was a treaty that uh, the, United States, the United States entered with another foreign power, the treaty had to be ratified in order to take effect by the US Senate. So, so in, uh, in the following months, in January, February, the, the US Senate uh, was debating whether it would ratify the treaty or not, whether they would uh, agree to the annexation of the Philippines or not. By the way, that's that's so funny when you know two 
countries decide what to do with some other land that they don't even have the right to you know it's like it's like when you you're you live with a roommate and the roommate made some food and you have your friends over and you guys decide who is going to eat that food it's like it's not even yours like why are you deciding right. over this that's fascinating yeah that's fascinating because like i i when i was reading up on it that was the year the 1898 is the same year when in america they had the start of the uh anti-imperialist mm-hmm league that was a start when they're like oh we should not be you know joining other people's wars and stuff like that um so yeah you're saying about the 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 treaty was the kind of the start of you know when they're like transferring the power over but then you have this like you know the the first three like 1899 i think to um 1902 is when they had this long two phase of war right because at the time i think president mckinley was like yeah we'll transfer power and we will uh, slowly give it to the people we just want to make sure that it it happens um the way we want it to right they had their 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 troops based in uh based in 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 manila at the time um so how how did this unfold because it didn't stop because the independence like you you mentioned it's 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 celebrated in june 12 but the philippines completely got independent in 1946 that's after the second world war too right so you had this huge like almost 50 years that the americans like yeah yeah we'll give you independence but it doesn't happen like what took so long uh, well so so during the months after uh it was obvious that the united states had um uh, its own self interests um uh to to fulfill when when they were in the philippines um they were sending more and more soldiers to the philippines uh after the battle of manila bay at the beginning the the united states claimed that they were there to help the filipinos gain their independence from spain okay uh and that they were there not to to take over the philippines but to respect and and to to support philippine independence but then so what happened was you know their words didn't match their action because they were sending more and more troops and so this aroused the suspicion of the the filipino revolutionaries under emilio aguinaldo who by the way was the first president of the philippine republic And so tension was mounting between the Filipino soldiers or the Filipino government and the Americans who were there uh, mainly the military and then with the signing of the treaty uh, it was obvious that um the United States wanted to take over the Philippines um and in February that was when uh the um the war broke out on february 4 uh when in a place outside of manila uh there was a skirmish between filipino and american soldiers and the day um and during that time the us senate was again was uh debating whether to ratify the treaty or not there were uh 80 84 senators at that time in order to ratify the treaty you have to have two thirds of the senate voting 
yes or in agreement to the treaty. And prior to that outbreak of, of, of fighting between Filipino and American soldiers, the, the debate seemed to lean uh, towards uh, not signing the treaty. Many Americans were, were, were kind of uh, wary about uh, taking over the Philippines uh, for, for different reasons. Um, anyhow, when the fighting happened, the Senate the following day voted and they voted 57 in favor of the treaty and 27 against, which is only one vote more than the 56 required. Okay, so it was a, in a way a closed vote. And so with the ratification of the, uh, the Treaty of Paris, which officially ceded uh, the Philippines to Spain, uh, the declaration of war was made. Um, and the Philippine-American War, uh, like you said, began in February of 1899 and lasted for three years officially um, because on, on July 4, 1902, um, the U.S. president declared it over. But in fact, uh, fighting against the United States um, continued for another 10 years. You know, it's like the Iraq war, Iraqi war. You remember when Bush <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. declared it over, but then the right. fighting still continued. No, it's fascinating because like you, you mentioned, like, you know, the, the war was over and one, one party just decides that it's over, even that it's not over. Um, but then the U.S. decided to make the Philippines a commonwealth. Well, that was uh, in 1935. So three three decades later. Yeah, that was when FDR was in po in power, I believe, right? So, like, what changed that made that happen? And like, and following that, why did the U.S. decide that? Oh, let's finally give them the independence. Okay. Well, before I answer that, I just have to mention that the Philippine-American War resulted in uh, the U.S. losing or spending more than three hundred million dollars and losing more than a thousand men, whereas in, on the Philippine side, there were over 600,000 people who died, uh, mm. some directly from the war, but some indirectly because of poverty of disease or disease uh, as a result of um, mm. the, you know, uh, the, uh, the war. And so for, you know, starting in um, the early 1900s, the Americans start they 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 got uh, um, <clears throat> they started creating the colonial state by establishing a public educational system uh, in the Philippines where English was made the medium of instruction and and of course the curriculum was more about the United States and not about the Philippines um, so that started the the colonizing of the minds of the people. You know, they colonize the land, then you have to colonize the minds. And um, along with that, um, they also started uh, sending Filipinos to the United States. Uh, first, mainly to Hawaii as laborers. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they also sent them to California, uh, to the West Coast. and. 
and um, and the number of Filipino laborers grew um, in the in the United States, and they became or they were seen as a threat to white labor, you know, just as the Chinese and the Japanese uh, were also ex um, seen as competitors to, to white labor, the, the Filipinos eventually uh, was seen as a competitor uh, to white labor, especially those in the agricultural sector. And so these uh, labor unions, uh, especially in the, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, given that that was a time also of the Great Depression, uh, started to push the federal government to exclude the Filipinos from coming to the United States. They wanted to stop uh, Filipino labor economic uh, competition. And so they, they pushed the, um, the federal government to make the Philippines independent so that that would take away the privilege that Filipino laborers had from being a from coming from coming from a an American colony. So, in other words, up to 1935, the the Philippines um, was a an American colony, and the Filipinos were U.S. nationals, and therefore they could come to the United States without visas. You know, same, similar situation with Puerto Rico today. Puerto Ricans can just come to the United right. States. Uh, mm -hmm. So if by declaring the Philippines independent, then the Filipinos automatically lo um, uh, would automatically lose their status as U.S. nationals. So that's why they created first a Commonwealth period. Uh, this was... Uh, a bill called the Tidings McDuffie Bill that was signed into law in 1935, which made uh, the Philippines a Commonwealth of the United States, not, not completely independent, but that meant that the Filipinos were not anymore US nationals. Um, and so even though outwardly the United States was was uh, brandishing this uh, law as a fulfillment of their promise to um, grant the Philippines independence, as if you know they were really very altruistic and concerned about the Philippines. In fact, it was it was signed um, because it was born out of anxieties about not just economic competition from Filipino laborers, but also the presence of Filipinos in the United States, who some of whom intermarried with local women. You know, so there was this racial prejudice against Filipinos also, um, and, and not wanting them to stay here and, and to, to mingle with uh, American women, for example. Mm. yeah it's that's always that's always the uh, case i feel like because like during the second world war there was a huge um rise of mexican workers coming to the u.s because they needed like more labor 
to uh, um, work because people are you know fighting overseas and then after the war was ended they're like oh we don't know what to do with these people i'm like yeah you brought them in like what do you mean you don't know what to do with them that's the same case with with the filipino laborers i feel like you, you they invited you over they're like oh now i don't know what to like you bought us like what do you mean you don't know what to do and it's always fun uh, colonizing the minds right it's like when if if someone is going through a divorce and if if you stay with the mom or the dad the other person is always like oh your mom is the worst like no why are you (laughs) telling me this like she's she's fine what are you talking about um so yeah we you can explain the reason very well of like you know why it was obviously u.s interest why you kind of had to Obviously, whoever is trying to win the election, you have to make sure that immigration is stricter because that's how always what wins elections. It feels like um, so you you have you have the independence of uh, Philippines, and so like now like the U.S. and Philippines are support uh, like they're very good trading partners. They have a lot of aid that the U.S. sends and a lot of economic um, trust between the two countries. So, what is I guess the perception of the people in Philippines right now about how they view that start? that a tumultuous start, so to say, like a very difficult start to their independence with this country that at the time they had a lot of problems with, but now it's like friendly. So is there, what is, what is the take on that? For I would say that uh, the United States, after establishing the public educational system in the Philippines, uh, I believe in, in 1901, succeeded in in a way of colonizing or brainwashing the Filipinos' minds. Um, first of all, that led this led to what we may call colonial mentality, you know, where uh, the people who were colonized uh, start to think of like the colonizers. And what do the colonizers think? They think that they're superior to the colonized. The Filipinos also started to think that Americans are superior, you know, that Americans are their saviors, that they look up to the Americans and anything American. Um, and not only that, uh, the, the Americans successfully erased that history, uh, of that violent history uh, of uh, the takeover, you know, um, this Philippine-American war is seldom taught in in the in the Philippines and let alone here in the United States. Uh, so so succeeding generations because of that kind of brainwashing uh, forgot about their past and also and started to to believe that the Americans were were really there uh, in order to to help them uh, run their own country uh, and and. And the uh, Philippine independence in 1946, uh, there continued a neo-colonial relationship between the United States and the Philippines. In other words, the Philippine economy was still very dependent on the United States. Um, the Philippines was still an ally of the US in, in geopolitical matters in the region. Um, and that, uh, the Philippines continues to be um, to be infused with uh, these images from Hollywood movies, uh, uh, television, or print media of 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 the 
of the Americans as as and and their way of life as being better, something to aspire to. So all these factors um, led to this continuation or continuing fascination or adulation by the Filipinos of of American culture, you know, of American society, of the American people. And yeah, today, so if you go to the Philippines today, you'd see that uh, most, of the, most of the places, I mean, signs are in English, newspapers are in English. There are of course, newspapers in, in uh, the vernacular the local vernacular or TV shows, but it's it's still very American. Sir, in the on the surface, you see a lot of multinational companies, Starbucks in you know uh, in in many many uh, almost every corner. Uh, what I'm hearing from you is that obviously there's a huge cultural and societal impact of the U.S. and in the Philippines today, and you know it makes sense that you always look up to your colonizers because you know you're you're kind of you know brainwashed into thinking they're superior, and that's been the case in most uh, countries. I feel like so I, I kind of want to pivot to your research when you talked about the Chinaman question and its legacy. So what what was what was going on? when you know us was sending back labor laborers right to to the mainland um where they're also making sure that no chinese ethnicity people can come back to the mainland was that like how rigorous was that what, what can we learn from that mm -hmm. policy today so um to understand the chinaman question what i call the chinaman question in the philippines uh we have to look back to the united states own chinaman question which was um, after the gold rush in the 1850s, there were uh, more and more Chinese coming to the, to the United States. And then later on, they were hired to work on the uh, transcontinental railroads and in, 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 in mines, and then later on as agricultural workers. So the increasing number of the Chinese in the United States led to uh, an anti uh, anti-Chinese movement, you know, uh, especially amongst uh, white laborers or white labor unions, which uh, again um, pushed the the United States government to to limit or to try to to limit the immigration of Chinese laborers into the United States. And so the response of the U.S. government was it even went beyond what the white labor unions were asking because the white labor unions were only asking for the limitation you know a restriction but not the prohibition instead the united states government uh, made into law the chinese exclusion act of 1882 which totally excluded uh, chinese laborers skilled or unskilled and that law was supposed to last for 10 years but in 1892, they extended it for another 10 years. And then in 1902, they extended it indefinitely. Okay, so, so when the United States took over the Philippines in 1898, they saw that there were so many Chinese in the Philippines as well. 
because the Philippines was very close to China and, and uh, many Chinese from the southern part of China, especially from the province of Fujian, historically had been emigrating to the Philippines, living there, settling down, creating families, and so on and so forth. So when they came to the Philippines, they saw, wow, there are so many Chinese here. So what do we do? Do we allow them to, to remain or to continue coming? Or do we also stop them from, 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 from immigrating to the Philippines? Uh, immigrating. And um, there was a huge debate because on the one hand, American businessmen, capitalists, wanted the Chinese to remain because they provided the cheap labor for the industries to grow, for the roads to be built, for the bridges, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, there were those who, uh, who said that if we allow the Chinese to come in, then we will lose the war against the Filipinos because the Filipinos would see that, well, this is proof that the United States was only, is only interested in its own interest, you know, self-interested by allowing the Chinese to come and consequently um, creating economic competition to Filipino laborers. So, so they were saying we should also stop the Chinese from coming uh, so that we can prove to the Filipinos that we want to help the Philippines and uh, the Filipinos establish a country for themselves. Okay. And another, but this is another reason that has not really been um, outwardly spoken that why that the reason why they didn't want to use uh, the reason why they didn't want the Chinese to come to the Philippines was that the Chinese in the Philippines could use the Philippines as a stepping stone to come to the United States, right? Since the Philippines became a colony of the US, it would be easier for the Chinese to come to the United States. So there was also the fear that allowing Chinese into the Philippines would lead to, con to greater Chinese immigration to the United States. Um, so what happened then when the Chinese Exclusion Act was also applied to the Philippines. And because of that, um, if you compare the Philippines to other Southeast Asian nations, it has one of the uh, smaller population of ethnic Chinese. Um, I'm comparing this, for example, to Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. And this, is, this was partly because of the Chinese Exclusion Act being extended to the Philippines. Only merchants, travelers, educators, teachers, students, or diplomats could enter from China to the Philippines. But if you're a laborer, you could not enter the Philippines. Um, so in a way, um, that has helped to increase the division between the Chinese and the Filipinos, because what happened was that that the Chinese who remained in the Philippines or who were allowed to come in or who managed to come in, you know, um, 
illegally or legally, uh, belong to the mercantilist class. You can only remain in the Philippines if you are a merchant, in other words. So now, so that, that resulted in most of the Chinese coming to the Philippines or remaining in the Philippines belonging to a wealthier, wealthier class of people. And it's the same here in the United States in 1965, the Immigration Act uh, in, or attracted professionals from Asia, you know, uh, if you have a college degree and if you have a skill, then you come in. So that changed the kind of the face of Asian Americans as you have increasingly uh, Asian immigrants with college degrees and also with more wealth. In the same manner in the Philippines, American colonization changed the face of the Chinese there so that many of them, um, were were uh, from the merchant class, and and aside, so so wealth became also a marker of difference between the Filipinos and the Chinese. Right. So that's that's the same reason, like why we have the model minority yeah. myth. You know, it's oh, of course we're gonna be model because we're the only ones that are being led into the right. country. <laughs> like, no, like you, you are not gonna not gonna get someone who has a GED in Bangladesh. You know, like you're not gonna invite them unless things change. Obviously, so so were you part of that culture? Like when you're growing up, you said you have like a you know Chinese background. So how was that looked upon when you're growing up? So that was a sign of like wealth as well when you were interacting with your um, schoolmates. Um, well, during my earlier schooling or education, I mean, because I went to Chinese schools, uh, most of us came from, I mean, most of us were Chinese and, and came from wealthier or middle, let's say middle class. You know? hmm. um, it was only, and, and it was only in, in college when I realized that um, Well, that uh, being Philipp, well, well, let me take that back. Um, so the Chinese in the Philippines uh, are seen as coming from a wealthier class of people and they're mostly in business. And I grew up with that kind of thinking myself. So that when I went to Taiwan, for example, when I was 19 years old, mm. I was shocked to see Chinese people, I mean, they're from Taiwan, but they're Chinese, ethnic Chinese, who were drivers of buses, who were street cleaners, mm. um, uh, who, were, who were poor, who were beggars. I was shocked because growing up in the Philippines, for me, being a Chinese meant that you are from a rich class and the, the people mm. who, who are... Who, um, did the manual labor or who are blue collar were Filipinos. Okay. Mm. Um, so, so I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but no, but I, I, I can totally relate. Like if there's like a South Asian kid, you know, raised in the U S 
um, you'll probably see like most people, like, you know, like the stereotype of like being doctors, engineers or whatever. You don't really see a lot of South Asian homeless person, right? It's very rare. Mm-hmm. You just need one trip to India or Bangladesh and you'll see tons. Right. And that's when you'll be like, oh, sh- I didn't know that, that, you know, there are people who are poor. Of our- yeah, of course, there's so many. You just don't, you just don't see it because there, there's, there's been a filter created or artificial filter created around the immigration policies that led to the uh, situation that you're in right now, which, which completely makes sense and uh, totally relatable. Yeah. And, but it was only in college that I guess that I, I started to, um, befriend Filipinos and, and not all Filipinos in my university were, were from the middle class. And so, um, maybe, maybe that, also introduced me to the fact that there are Filipinos who are also middle class and upper upper class and then not all Filipinos are you know are drivers or janitors or street cleaners or maids uh, or workers but but there still exists a, a, a division between the Chinese and the Filipinos today uh, as seen by for example, the uh, many Chinese families don't want their children to marry a Filipino. Um, and then because of the rising tension between China and the United States and China and the Philippines over this group of islands in South China Sea, um, there is a growing anti-Chinese sentiment amongst Filipinos today uh, because they see China as being a bully uh, to the Philippines um, uh, in that in that dispute over those islands, and also many Chinese nationals are now coming to the Philippines to work, and they you know some of them engage in in rowdy behavior in, you know and and that gets gets to the news printed in newspapers, and so Filipinos when they see these Chinese. Uh, they lump together the Chinese from China and the Chinese in the Philippines as one. And so uh, they don't really distinguish people like me who are who who have been there for for a few generations and who consider our, themselves first and foremost Filipino. They see us and the and the new immigrants as coming from the same place and and therefore our loyalties are being questioned whether we are loyal to the Philippines or to China. What could solve the tension? There is a civic organization in the Philippines uh, run by uh, Chinese Filipinos like me, you know, um, mm. and, and these are mainly uh, Chinese who consider the Fili- themselves first and foremost as Filipinos and that they, they are really concerned about the the future of the Philippines um, and do not look at China as their country or, or have loyalties towards China. And so this organization has been since 1987 when it was founded, trying to promote uh, this kind of what they call it a bridge of understanding between the Chinese and Filipinos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm a member of that organization, even though I'm, I'm here in the United States. I was a member when I was back there and I continued to um, be involved somehow. So I would like to continue um, 
first of all, my 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 writing, my scholarship, is in a way trying to um, achieve that kind of goal of greater understanding between the Chinese and the Filipinos, and I will continue doing that, um, um, you know, as far as I can, and. Eventually, when I return to the Philippines, after I finish, after I retire, I, I do intend to go back to the Philippines and mm. then continue working uh, together with this organization uh, in promoting understanding between the Chinese and the Filipinos. Has there been any push of educating the youth about the history of the war that you said is missing right now? Like the, me, even the... Uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which kind of created, you know, the consequences that you're bearing right now. Has there been any kind of introduction in the schooling system or are you and or the group that you are working with trying to introduce anything on those lines? Uh, in in uh, in the formal sector, meaning if we're talking about, let's say, government uh, and its educational system and the, the kind of curriculum um, that it has created and the textbooks that they have assigned, nothing really talks about uh, this past, um, whether it's the Philippine American War or whether it's the Chinese Exclusion Act, nothing. I don't think, uh, uh, very, very, very few people know about this history, but the organization in its own way um, has been trying to um, educate the the Filipinos about this past. It has a um, a newsletter and a magazine where where they they talk about um, sometimes they talk about the past history, and then they would sometimes come up with a, a musical or a, or a play or a show uh, highlighting this history. Uh, but it's not done in the kind of sustained manner. Um, so I, I believe that there's still a lot of work. There's actually a museum in the Philippines called the um, Bahai, Bahai Chinoy, which means uh, the Museum of the Chinese in Philippine Life. So it, that one, I think, and again, this is run by the organization. I think that does a good job in educating the visitors of, of this past involving the Chinese in the Philippines. What was, I guess, you know, like we talked about the past and the, the recent past of, I kind of wanted to ask you if you had um, some input on the, you know, the U.S. and Russia's Cold War kind of impacts pretty much, you know, all those Asian countries. And I know that Ferdinand Marcus was one of the rulers or like president, whatever you may call, um, during those years. Has that been impactful? And what has that legacy been for the Filipino people, like how how do they view that? How do the how do how do they view the Marcos years? I guess. Well, you're talking about a couple of things here that I would like to address. One is the Cold War, and and uh, and this, the position of the Philippines in that Cold War, um, because the after World War II, so the Philippines was given independence, but then it remained very close to the United States and and the military bases of the United States were there until 1992. 
So mm. uh, during the succeeding wars, uh, from the Korean War to uh, the uh, the the fighting in 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 China and and Taiwan, and then also the Vietnam War, all the military involvements of the United States after World War II in the Asia Pacific region, the Philippines was involved because of the US bases. It had um, mm. the largest naval base in the region at the time and, and a mm. large uh, military base. Um, so the Philippines was seen as an ally of the United States in all of its kind of uh, uh, Cold War policies uh, or involvements in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and part of that then would explain their approach or their treatment of Ferdinand Marcos. Because right. one of the things that the United States was afraid of was the, the falling of Asia or Southeast Asia to communism, right? Of course. And so in the Philippines, there was a growing communist insurgency. And that communist insurgency even grew stronger or larger in the 1970s and early 1980s because the Philippine economy was so bad under the mm. Marcos regime. Mm. But despite the fact that, uh, so Marcos tried to, to quell the communist insurgency by asking the United States for more money to buy arms, you know, or you know, to, to fight communism in the Philippines, while he himself was enriching himself, um, siphoning the, the wealth of the country and, and putting it in their own pockets and their friends' pockets and and leading really the country to to, to, to bankruptcy. And, and he, he, along from, uh, um, aside from stealing money from the people, he, he also clamped down on opposition. So he, he declared martial law in 1972 and declared himself also like president for life. You know, um, he became a dictator. Yeah. And, and he imprisoned his political opponents, assassinated them. And, you know, and so the United States turned a blind eye towards these human rights atrocities, the corruption in, in Marcos's government, because Marcos said that he would protect U.S. or American interests in the Philippines. Hmm. He, he fashioned himself as the only person who could solve the communist insurgency in the Philippines. Mm. When in fact, he was actually the number one recruiter of the communist insurgency because of what he was doing to the country. He was really just pulling the country down so badly that more and more people were in extreme poverty were in, you know, in um, did not have any options, but to join the communist movement. Right. So, so, so yeah. So that was a, a really a. If you look back at U.S. history, 
Uh, it just is an example of how U.S. foreign policy is very hypocritical. So, as like I I know, um, you know, there was like a strong man. Um, like no, most dictators are seen as the strong man type of personality, right? And you have a, I think Duterte. He he was obviously um, seen as a strong one as well. Has there been any kind of parallels between the two at all? Uh, any kind of what? A- any kind of parallels between the two of how they kind of rule over or like kind of um, have their policies in oh, place? Oh, between Marcos and Duterte. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, first of all, Duterte is a good friend of the Marcoses. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Marcos family is really coming back and, and assuming, again, political power. You know, they stole billions of dollars, so they still have the money. And uh, mm-hmm. even though the Marcoses were exiled to Hawaii in 1986, they, they came back three years later to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And Marcos died already at the time. But his wife, his three children, and his followers returned to the Philippines, and they were allowed to to run for office so that his daughter is now governor of their province. His son is a senator. Um, And then the the mother is a congresswoman. so, So they still wield a lot of power. And they supported Duterte in his run for presidency. Mm. So what happened was Duterte in return allowed Ferdinand Marcos, his body to be buried in the uh, National Heroes Cemetery. Because for, 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 for years, the past presidents wouldn't allow Marcos's body, which had been preserved, no? Wow. And, and placed in a glass encasement in his home province, they refused to allow him to be buried in the National Hero Cemetery in Manila. Mm. But under Duterte, he allowed it. And Duterte has not been shy about uh, expressing his admiration for Marcos and his, and his way of governing. And so now mm. he's also following some of the things that Marcos had done. You know, for example, he has uh, uh, just passed his 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 government just passed into law uh, this form of uh, anti. Uh, it's 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 a it's a clampdown on on the freedom of speech. You know, it was wow. it's it's almost like censorship um, because this made um, this law. Uh, would render anyone who's seen as anti-government as uh, as a criminal. That's almost like godlike when you when you cannot speak against like any kind of um, authority. That's a bad sign. If you cannot take criticism, you're probably not in the right. Yeah. So any liberal, so-called liberal or progressive media in the Philippines had been subjected to harassment. Um, mm. Uh, threats or or uh, being closed down. Like there's this one TV st- popular TV station that was closed down because it had been critical of Duterte uh, or unfriendly towards Duterte. 
Um, and not only that, I mean, uh, again, the, the disregard for human rights or due process of law uh, mm -hmm. in, in, its, uh, in Duterte's uh, war on drugs, you know, where he resorted, yeah. into, resorted to extrajudicial killings. Um, so all these are uh, the, the tactics, the, the methods uh, of a dictator uh, that Marcos was. But there right. are these parallels um, between the two, right? And and the, and is has there been any kind of discussion on those parallels? Like, what do the people are the people mostly like okay with it, or they're trying to do something and it's just too hard to overpower? Well, that's a that's really a uh, a complex question, but it's an important question to be asked because, ironically. And if you were to believe uh, surveys, a survey said that 90% of Filipinos support Duterte. Yeah, so, so it seems that a lot of Filipinos, again, if these surveys are, were, were credible, seem to support his method, his policies, his way of governing, you know, this uh, sort of maybe... Um, desire for a strong man rule. Um, but on the other hand, you might say, maybe they're afraid of him, you know, um, because again, he, he, he would imprison someone who would be, who would speak out against him. And he also, I mean, a lot of journalists had been assassinated um, in the country, those who are very critical if not journalists, uh, labor organizers or activists, you know, had been uh, harassed, imprisoned, or killed. So there's a, an atmosphere of fear under his government. And so I don't know um, if um, Filipinos truly support him because they admire him uh, and believe in his policies or whether, uh, they, they were they are afraid uh, to speak their mind. Uh, yeah, that's always that's always a difficult question to answer, um, especially when you know you you went through democratic elections, but you know you don't know what's what is actually going on under the covers. I guess, um, but you know I, I've I've taken a lot of your time, and I will before we go, I I kind of want to ask you like what is optimally your hope and desire of how you know the american the uh, the philippines and the china relationship become in the future and also i'd like you to tell the fans or the people where they can find you your projects you're working on or the books you wanna um i guess um you want to tell about okay oh before i answer that those two things uh one i also like to mention that um because the the Philippines is supposedly a democracy, you know, so there's there are elections every six years. So next year is election year. So a president holds the presidency for a term of six years, and and cannot be reelected, you know. So because of that political system, electoral system, maybe maybe the people are saying okay. We'll just wait for the elections to, to change the government if we're not happy with the government, right? 
but we, we the country did have two people power movements in the last 50 years, in 1986 and then in 1991, uh, mm. where people resorted to marching in the streets or going to the streets and demanding the resignation uh, of the president. And so that led to the downfall of Marcos and then also later on to Joseph Estrada um, when he was being charged, when he was being impeached in the Senate. Um, so in other words, um, I don't know if many people now have bought into the lie of the United States brand of democracy where the most effective change can come from these so-called democratic processes. You know? um, because we know that democracy in the Philippines in a way is a sham. You know, it can be bought, you know, it could be manipulated, it could be. So, so that's one. I, I hope that, um, that the elections next year would be clean, that it would re truly reflect uh, a, the, the will of an electorate that's, uh, that's very thoughtful, that, that really exercises um, their, their, not just their right to vote, but also uh, hoping that they vote wisely. Now with the US and China and the Philippines, I mean, um, there's uh, one thing that Duterte has done is to pit, kind of pit China against the United States, you know, or use China as a way to bait the United States by pivoting towards China. So they, many Filipinos see Duterte as being pro-China, pro uh, pro-Chinese government. Um, and of course, this makes the US nervous you know, because it wants uh, the Philippines to remain its ally. Um, but Duterte has been sort of being, has sort of been, uh, uh, being coy about you know his loyalties or his uh, um, his, uh, <clears throat> his 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 policy or or attitude towards these two superpowers. Sometimes he would he would uh, criticize the United States, but sometimes he would also criticize the Chinese government. Although I think overall he's more. Um, friendly towards China than the United States. That friendliness, uh, I, I mean, that antagonism towards the United States also came about because when he first became president and Obama was still the president in the United States, it, Obama and his administration was uh, were critical of his human rights record no, of the extrajudicial killing. So they criticized him um, for his approach to the war on drugs. And so he, he, he became pissed at uh, Obama. But when Trump became president uh, and Trump sort of like expressed this admiration for, for Duterte and also had kind of a, a hands off 
uh, approach towards his uh, Duterte's way of governing, uh, there seemed to be a kind of again of a um, at least a a uh, a um, a, a good relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines. But now we're under Biden. We don't know if Biden would start again calling him out uh, on his record um, as a as a seeming you know as a um, would be dictator. Um, so so we'll see. But that but in the U.S., I think many policy thinkers are really looking into that issue in South China Sea and saying that that would be the next really hot spot in uh, geopolitical uh, geopolitics in the world. Uh, and so the Philippines, at least Duterte knows that it's, it's, it's a pawn, you know, in, in, that, in that rivalry between the U.S. and China. Uh, and it's trying to position itself where, you know, it would protect its own interests um, and, and would just sort of like, uh, I guess, study the situation and, and see where, you know, um, what, what stands to take or what policies to take uh, that, would, that would not put them in danger whether it's being more pro-American or pro-China. And, and the Chinese ambassador, uh, the Philippine ambassador to China had mentioned this recently, that of course, it, they, the Philippines hope, the Philippines hopes that, that the two powers, superpowers would be able to resolve this without resorting to, to war or violence. You know? And then with my own work, I mean, um, so I published uh, um, my, my first major book, uh, which is uh, The Chinese and Chinese Mestizos of Manila, um, which focuses on the period from 1860s to the 1930s. That, that was uh, published by Brill, a, uh, an academic press based in the Netherlands. And it's available online in the Amazon, but it's very expensive because Brill, they publish really expensive books. Um, so if, you're, if you want to buy it, then if you're willing to shell out $170, <laughs> which for me, I myself wouldn't even recommend my <laughs> friends or my family members to buy it. Uh, the alternative is to uh, check your libraries. Um, you can always borrow it from the library. Or if you live in the Philippines, you could actually get the Philippine version for like uh, uh, about uh, $6. Uh, so there is a Philippine print, but it's only exclusive to the Philippines. And then my, there's another book that uh, is coming out in April called uh, More Tomboy, More Bakla Than We Admit. Uh, this is uh, the first um, anthology on LGBTQ studies in the Philippines. Um, that is available online for purchase from the publisher, which is uh, called uh, Vibal. 
that's V-I-B-A-L. And so if you go to their uh, online shopping um, page, you could look for uh, that book called More Tomboy, More Bakla Than We Admit. Um, and then I'm working currently on the, the next major book project, which is on the uh, Chinaman question in the Philippines under the American colonial period. That one I'm still working on and hopefully it will come out or it will be finished by the end of the year. And it will also be published by, by Brill, uh, the same publisher of my first book. That's the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. If you like the show, you can support it by leaving an Apple review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shafi Stands Up on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Shafi Hussain. There's some sketches I have. They're fun. I enjoyed making them. And a shout out to the podcast sponsor, Tiny Cupboard. They have some amazing virtual stand-up shows you can check out at thetinycupboard.com. Thank you so much for listening.